Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Come into God's presence with singing, enter God's courts with praise. Let us worship the Lord our God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless God's holy name. Bless the Lord, my soul, and do not forget all Who forgives all inequity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Gracious God, we come before you this day in the face of our busy and uncertain lives, searching for a soft place to land. It is here in the sacred place that you meet us with gentleness. You envelop us with compassion. You build up connections in places we never thought possible. We ask you, loving God, to abide with us in this place this day and show us 
that we are not alone. Build up our ties with you and with one another, we pray in the name of the triune God. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia on this beautiful Sunday morning. I am delighted to welcome everyone in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and because this word of welcome is extended in Christ's name, it means that it is a word of welcome that is extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. All are welcome in God's house. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, kindly to sign the friendship pad, which you'll see on the end of your pew. If you would sign it and send it down and back again, we would have the advantage of each other's names at the conclusion of worship. And likewise, I'd like to invite everyone to a time of fellowship in Old Buttonwood Hall at the conclusion of this service. Old Buttonwood is just out this door to my right and down a very short ramp. There you will find that our deacons have put together light refreshments, but most importantly, the opportunity for us to engage with one another deeply as a family of faith. Let me highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin for your particular attention. The first is actually not in the announcements, and that is to say, you, you hear us with the piano. That does not mean anything is wrong with the pipe organ. It's fine. It means that we were not able to get an organist for today. We have lined up gifted organists all the way through to the end of January, except for today. So I am very grateful to Fran Kramer and Owen Robbins for their masterful prelude and uh, look forward to hearing the postlude and also for their accompanying today. We are, we are so blessed by the gifts of all the musicians in our congregation, particularly in our choir, who give so generously and freely of themselves for our worship. So thank you both. Uh, let me highlight that our T&T group, our 20s and 30s, has an event today at the Schuylkill Banks. You will meet in Old Buttonwood Hall at 11 a.m. or just find Laura. She'll know how to get you where you need to be. Anyone in your 20s or 30s is uh, invited to take part in that. Uh, also this week on Thursday, we have a wonderful opportunity at the Presbyterian Historical Society to hear from a very sought-after speaker, Dr. Heath Carter uh, from Princeton, uh, who is uh, highly regarded and is going to be delivering a lecture uh, based on the history of First Presbyterian Church, but also with an eye for the future of the church. That takes place at the Presbyterian Historical Society on Thursday. There is a garden reception to precede it, and of course the lecture is later. Uh, it is helpful, however, for you to register for that. And knowing that we had several folks that we would like to register, we have extended that registration by a week to the September the 19th. So please do register by September 19th for the opportunity to come and to hear Dr. Heath Carter at the Historical Society as part of our 325th anniversary. There is a conversation to be had next week around the topic of gun violence and faith responses to it. This is being led by our Gun Violence Prevention Task Force. You have an opportunity to read articles that we're handing out in advance. If you didn't get your articles, there are someone in the narthex who will be happy to provide them to you. And uh, I am sure there will be people in fellowship hour as well that would be delighted to distribute those two articles from the Presbyterian Outlook, which will form the basis of our conversation so we can all read the articles and come with something to discuss uh, next Sunday. And lunch will be provided, and I had a note saying that 
you should certainly come even if you don't RSVP, but it's always nice to know how many sandwiches to buy, so RSVP, I believe it's on our church website. If not, you can call the church office to make those arrangements as well. I believe that covers everything, so we turn now to an minute for missions from Ned Bloom from the American Red Cross. such an honor. I've lived in Center City most of my life. It's the first time I've actually been inside this building, so just thank you very much for allowing us to speak today. Anyway, as you heard, my name is Ned Bloom. I'm with the Red Cross. Should be easy to remember, Ned rhymes with red. That should be easy to remember. And part of my job with the Red Cross is to dispel some myths, to share some truth, and invite people to get involved with our organization. So myth number one about the Red Cross we are a government organization. That is a myth. Red Cross is not a government agency. We have no connection to the U.S. government in any capacity. In fact, we are the country's largest humanitarian organization, and we get zero money from the government. We've actually turned that into a positive. Because the government gives us no, zero money, there are no strings attached to our services, which means we will help anybody at any time. We don't care about their nationality, their citizenship level, where they're coming from, where they're going. All of our services, and all of them are free, are, regard are there because we only want to alleviate human suffering. And that is the mission of the Red Cross, to alleviate human suffering. It's on the back of my business card. I'm actually very proud of that. Truth about the Red Cross, and this astounds me every time I say it, 90% of our workforce is comprised of volunteers. We're a multi-million dollar organization. 90% of our work is done by volunteers. Everything from our board of directors, the people who take care of our vehicles, who take care of our grounds, who staff blood drives, who work our disaster scenes, everything is done by volunteers. And this is where you might want to consider joining our organization. So if you ever like to volunteer with the Red Cross, starts here, starts with me. We can have a conversation. And I will help find you something that fits your schedule, and fits your interests. Whether you want to help support our blood drives as an ambassador, as we call it, staffing the registration desk, not the phlebotomy, that's done by professionals, but staff the registration desk. Or drive blood and supplies to and from area hospitals. So if you ever see a Red Cross car out there, please be very careful. It's either me or one of our volunteers. So please, I ask you to be very careful. We also respond to disasters, and I hate to call the word small disaster or a little disaster or a house fire, but that's about 90% of the disasters we see in Philadelphia. It's actually where I started myself as a volunteer 15 years ago, responding to those events. So we respond to little house fires, to individual house fires, and sometimes larger events, like that fire that happened in Chester County last week at the apartment complex. Red Cross volunteers are there, making sure people have a place to stay, food in their belly, clothes on their back. You can also volunteer with the Red Cross working from home on your schedule because we need people to actually kind of be that communication hub for some of those responses. How about a national deployment? If you ever want to go to Hawaii, Florida, California to help people, 
don't go through the red car. So, again, it's been a privilege to be here. We also have disaster provisions. I believe I mentioned the disaster spiritual care. This is exactly what it sounds like. Sometimes we have those who are impacted by disaster who need spiritual care. So whatever you'd like to do with the Red Cross, whatever help you can provide, I'm here to answer any questions. I'll be able to hear throughout the service this morning. And again, I do appreciate the honor to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, everybody. Again, I appreciate being here. Thank you. In the harshness of our interactions with one another, forgiveness can be a difficult thing for us to muster. And yet we come to this time of confession each week, remembering that forgiveness is something that comes effortlessly for God. As William Blake once, once wrote, what is sin but a little error and fault that is soon forgiven? Friends, come, let us bring our truths before the divine trusting that God is eagerly awaiting to offer us God's love and forgiveness. Let us pray. Holy God, there are moments where it seems that the threads of human kindness that bind us together grow frayed. You give each of us to the other as your beloved, that we might see your image reflected to us in each kindness. Yet too often, we do not see one another the way you see us. Too often we compete where no competition is required. Too often we keep what is meant to be shared. Too often we withhold the kind word, the courteous gesture, and your vision for our life together becomes blurred, obscured by meanness and selfishness. Forgive us, we pray. Restore within us the love that you have entrusted to bind us together, that we might be as you intend us to be. may not always be able to be compassionate with one another, but God is always kind and understanding, patient and compassionate with us. God's grace may even move us to offer a little more grace to one another. And for us, this is very good news. Friends, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 25. Listen for God's word for you. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his lord ordered for him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all of his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell to his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the lord of the slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then this fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And then they went and reported to the Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that your debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his debt entirely. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Our second scripture lesson comes from the book of Romans, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Listen again for God's word for you. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over your opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day as better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Those who eat, eat in the honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. While those who abstain, abstain in the honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again so that, we might be, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. 
Why do you pass judgment on your brother or your sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or your sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will be made accountable to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our final scripture reading comes to us from the book of Genesis, the 50th chapter, beginning at the 15th verse and continuing through the 21st. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong we did to him? So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of God, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it. For good, in order to preserve a numerous people as God is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In The Atlantic this month, David Brooks poses a question. Why have Americans become so mean? He writes, I was recently talking with a restaurant owner who said he has to eject a customer from his restaurant for being rude or cruel behavior once a week. 
something that never used to happen. A head nurse at a hospital told me that many of her staff are leaving the profession because patients have become so abusive. At the far extreme of meanness, hate crimes rose in 2020 to their highest level in 12 years. Murder rates have been surging, at least until recently. Same with gun sales. Social trust is plummeting. In 2000, two-thirds of American households gave to charity. In 2018, fewer than half did. Brooks analyzes why he thinks this is and what to do about it. The solution, he concludes, lies in the realm of moral formation. In a healthy moral ecosystem, a web of interconnected responsibility causes us to live with kindness, empathy, and a small measure of humility. And we might even be nice about it. Niceness may be the moral equivalent of a Kleenex, easily used and imminently disposable, but that doesn't mean that it's not useful. Indeed, being nice to people costs us nothing and certainly greases the wheels of human interaction in ways that reduce friction between us. Being nice to people is not something we should spurn. Life together would be greatly improved for many people by simply exerting the basic social graces that niceness expounds. Saying please and thank you, particularly to those serving us, holding the door for those behind us, waiting our turn in line with good humor. All these things make life better for just about everyone. Kindness, however, has been at the top of my mind lately. There is something that feels very wrong about the sort of insult comedy that seems to dominate the ways in which common discourse proceeds. The reduction of complex issues to zingers, the replacement of true satire with memes that punch down rather than punching up. We notice the absence of civility at times more than its presence. I wonder if much of what troubles us culturally stems from a deficit of kindness. To orient one's life to function in a way that exhibits kindness, that enriches our common life. That recognizes the shared humanity between us. That gets at the heart of that old admonition often attributed to Philo of Alexandria, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Perhaps that great battle for each of us is to maintain our basic humanity in the face of cheaply manufactured outrage 
and insults. Kindness. A life oriented to kindness prepares us to offer forgiveness. I'll hazard a guess that if we listen to our lives, two things stand out in our memories. When someone wasn't very nice to us, or when someone was kind. Now, I don't happen to believe the world is falling apart any more today than it ever has been. In every age, there have been persons of coarseness and brutality, as well as persons of kindness and character. The story of Joseph is a story marked with coarseness, brutality, and jealousy. Jacob, Joseph's father, a man of pettiness stitched together with flaws, married two sisters, Rachel and Leah. He loved the one, but not the other. It is a story of sibling rivalry. And then they have children. Rachel gives birth to two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And the name of the second, Benjamin, is a distortion of a Hebrew name. And that distortion gives the name meaning. Son of my pain. Rabbis believe that Rachel died when Benjamin was born. And what good parent of a child who has just lost his mother would not in turn lavish love and affection on that bereaved child? But Jacob's brothers resent his special treatment. And finally, his brothers seize him and throw him in a pit intent on murder. It is his brother Reuben who wheedles the others. Ah, what good is it for us to kill him? So instead, they sell him into slavery with passing traders. They cover his coat in blood and take it to their father as evidence that Joseph is dead. It is a story that is bereft of human kindness. Joseph's father dotes all the more on the remaining son of Rachel. Benjamin is all that is left to Joseph of a sweeping love story that brought out his best as well as his worst. In due course, famine strikes the land and the sons of Jacob and Leah journey to Egypt to find food. Now, in the sweeping soap opera that is Genesis, it's very easy to get caught up on the stories of extremely dysfunctional families and thereby to miss what God is doing. God never causes the evil that we see in Genesis, but God is always working for the good, even perhaps especially in the midst of, of bad things. So in the intervening years, Joseph has become a person of tremendous wealth and influence, second only to Pharaoh. From Joseph's enslavement 
God brings the circumstances that will save his family and preserve God's covenant people. God always has a second act. When famine rages in Canaan, Joseph holds the power of life and death for those who cause him grievous harm. There is little about the story of Joseph to suggest to us that he is a person of innate niceness. Indeed, when his brothers come begging for food, he conceals his identity and toys with them. He makes them go home and bring back with them his brother Benjamin, to whom his father clings like a human security blanket. Then Joseph schemes with his staff to frame his brother Benjamin for a theft, a crime that carried the penalty of death. There is in this story, as we get toward the end of it, a parallelism between the story of, of Joseph in the pit and the life and death debate that are raged around him and the story of Benjamin. No, there is nothing that is nice about this story. Walter Brueggemann raises the question that must surely have lingered in his brother's minds when Jacob finally died. Perhaps now Joseph will unleash his long-restrained resentment. The brothers face a new circumstance requiring new assurances. The enduring power of guilt and its resultant fear is a matter about which every family knows. Like every family, these brothers know that the only one who can break the cycle and banish the guilt is the wronged party, the one they most fear. ask forgiveness is to recognize the depth of how one has wronged another. To give forgiveness is to release the right to hold accountable those who have wronged you. Is it any wonder that Brueggemann concludes forgiveness is as deep as human relations can go. There is no question that forgiveness is kindness that is costly. Sometimes it takes a very great discipline to exercise the kindness of forgiveness. To reach the point of forgiveness is to reach into the depths of wrong and pull forth kindness that comes from a place of deep and abiding grace. And it would be facile, insulting almost, to suggest that forgiveness is simply a matter of the will. Yes, there is an element of choosing to forgive that is essential in the act, but the ability to make that choice is generally the result 
of moral formation. It is the result of cultivating our ability to see grace in our own lives so that we are then able to give that grace to others. Perhaps even the ability to think in this way is a gift of grace. Would Joseph have had the moral formation to forgive his brothers decades sooner? We do not know. The Bible doesn't say. We do know that Joseph received from God wisdom and a generous life in the intervening years. We do know that Joseph was able in time to say God meant this for good. Moral formation, moral framework, the ability to see what God can do in broken circumstances, these are gifts of grace. In Louise Penny's Inspector Gamache series, there is a subplot beneath the murder mystery that is every bit as important as the whodunit aspect. Armand Gamache sees young officers who have been relegated to low status, neglected due to bad attitude or personal flaws or insolence or the like, and to the chagrin of his own team, he frequently pulls these officers onto his team. And there's always a moment of reckoning when he says this, there are four things that lead to wisdom. They are four sentences that we learn to say and mean. I don't know. I need help. I'm sorry. I was wrong. It is moral formation. Notably, it is moral formation for adults. Most of us think of moral formation, if we think of it at all, as something for children and adolescents. And certainly we are more malleable in those years, more open to the power of suggestion as we see goodness at work in others. But we adults shortchange ourselves if we behave as though what we absorb in adulthood doesn't shape us. It does matter. Empathy and kindness can be cultivated as much in adults as in toddlers. We cultivate these traits within ourselves by leaning in to our humanity. We train ourselves to think first of what others have experienced. Before reacting in a knee-jerk fashion, we discipline ourselves to consider why the person who has wronged us may have done so. Perhaps most importantly, we remember that we ourselves stand in need of forgiveness. Some of the time, perhaps most of the time, not just generally, but particularly. And perhaps we absorb some lessons by observing those things which make us recoil and resolving that if there is going to be any healing in our communities, in our culture, it must 
begin with ourselves. We observe that our community needs us to be better than what we encounter. Certainly, Jesus' parable today gives us an object lesson in what not to do. Brooks concludes his article. Look, I understand why people don't want to get all moralistic in public. Many of those who do so are self-righteous prigs or rank hypocrites. And all of this is only a start. But healthy moral ecologies don't just happen. They have to be seeded and tended by people who think and talk in moral terms, who try to model and inculcate moral behavior, who understand that we have to build moral communities because on our own, we are all selfish and flawed. kindness, the grace to forgive is born of our awareness of our own place in the grace of God. Perhaps that is the heart of what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote that if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we belong to God to abide in God is to abide in the reality of God's grace such that the exercise of forgiveness is a spiritual discipline born of God's goodness to us. Forgiveness is a long and repetitive story. Over and over, wrongdoers find that there is still enough love in the world and in the community not to pretend that nothing has happened but to move from the place of injury even deep injury to the place of forgiveness the discipline of forgiveness is a practice that occurs all the time over and over we don't cheapen forgiveness by dwelling in it. We make it part of our formation so that our decisions come from the place of having been forgiven. I love the way that Archbishop Rowan Williams put it. He writes, to live a forgiven life is not simply to live in a happy consciousness of having been absolved. Forgiveness is precisely the deep and abiding sense of what relation with God or with other human beings can and should be. And so, it is itself a stimulus, an irritant, necessarily provoking protests at impoverished versions of social and personal relations. Forgiveness is an extraordinary expression of kindness to others and also to ourselves. Because forgiveness is a transformative behavior. Forgiveness 
takes the coarseness and brutality of what has been. And it dares to imagine what in the grace of God can yet be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. heard the words professed and proclaimed today, but we do not have to walk out these doors to start responding to this word. We have the opportunity right here and right now to bring our voices together, daring to believe that we can be one people. So with this spirit in mind, let us declare together what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. A community is not made into a loving one due to its lack of mistakes. A community is a loving community because of what it does after its people inevitably wrong one another. A loving community is honest. It learns, it grows, it seeks to mend through truth and justice and change. In gratitude for our sacred commitment that we make to one another each week as a community of God, we're invited at this time to bring what we have together. 
our tithes and offerings will now be received. of forgiveness and compassion you call us to forgive one another and yet we struggle to follow your call may this act of giving be a gesture of our willingness to try to forgive and be forgiven bless these gifts that they may be used to do your reconciling work in our community and throughout the world we pray in the name of your child jesus who continues to love us still amen
us join together again in prayer. Let us pray. Loving God who remains with us through it all, we bring into your presence the fullness of who we are, the messy parts, the tired parts, the parts that dare to be content and even hopeful. We also bring to you the relationships that we carry with us, the supportive relationships, the wounded relationships, the ones that we have lost or remain uncertain. God, with courage and humility, we seek your guidance in mending the worlds between us and within us. While we try to act as though we have it all together, we recognize that there is so much in this world that we cannot control. Help us to recognize our limitations as a gift, as a recognition that we are called to do life together and that the weight of the world does not rest on our shoulders alone. Oh God, who bends the arc of history toward your truth and justice and peace, help us to act in the places that we can control. In all of our struggle and uncertainty and loss in this world, move within us a fierce empathy for one another. Help us to have the imagination to believe that those around us are doing the best that they can. Empower us to do the radical act of offering our kindness to one another, daring to believe that we are all deserving. Loving God, we want to believe that a new reality is possible, but we cannot always see it. Help us to let go of our hurts, of our grudges, if not for our neighbor's sake, then at least initially for our own. Help us to commit to seeking and expressing the oneness of our community. Help us to be generous and hospitable and kind even when those practices aren't easily in our nature. God, mold us into a people who are known for their kindness and justice and love. Mold us into your people, even as we pray the prayer that your child taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And when we are all kind to one another, that is how our humanity lives within us. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.